The rest of you can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're looking at body life, that is, how do we operate in the body from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And today we're looking at um, maybe a common thing that, that we all have to deal with, which is sin. Like, how do we deal with sin? And especially, how do we do that together? And uh, the 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, I think my battery is dead. Guys, can you just advance it for me on this thing here? Yeah, oh, there we go. I just need to restart it. Okay. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who t- thinks that he takes heed, uh, thinks he, that he stands, take heed lest he fall. For no temptation is taking you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and he will not be tempted, be, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And he's just saying, he's just acknowledging within the, the context of Scripture and the context of our experience that we're all tempted to sin, right? We all have that struggle. And he's dealing with this from the standpoint of the body. Um, he's dealing with just some situations. And it's, it's similar to um, our immune system, right? Our immune system is, you know, is an amazing thing. I don't understand it all. Um, I know they've learned a lot more about it since when I was in, I took biology, and, 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 but I, you understand the basic concept, right? That within our body, there are, there are ways that the body fights against infection. It, it, it works to make sure that it, 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 it provides for itself. There was a situation that, that arose recent, not recently, in 2008, a story made the rounds of a 15-year-old girl from Australia. Her name was Demi Lee. And she was the first, no, she, was, she needed a liver transplant. Evidently, her liver was failing at 15 years old. That's pretty traumatic. And they uh, transplanted her liver. And uh, uh, she, was, uh, she was an O-negative patient. And uh, they found a, a, a liver from a, a young 12-year-old boy. They were going to take care of it, and it started to work well, and then it started to, to, to go poorly. The, 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 it seemed like the body was rejecting it, and they, they started to do samples to try to figure out what was going on, and they realized that her, bo- her blood was now O positive rather than O negative. And they're like, this has got to be a mistake. This has got to be a mistake. Uh, and so they, they checked and rechecked, and they realized that this is a one in a six billion miracle they, they, they figured out that actually the, the stem cells in, from the 12-year-old in Brennan's new liver, liver it, because she, had, she was already immune compromised, they invaded her blood's bone marrow, took over her immune system, and changed her blood type from O negative to O positive, which is um, unheard of. And, 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 and because of that, they, they had to stop all of the drugs that they normally give transplant patients to keep their immune system suppressed and instead she can just live a normal life because her immune system works and and it's similar in a, in a way to to what happens when we become saved we we have a, 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 in a sense a new immune system we, we thought we had a way of surviving the affections and the the struggles of life and the way we fight against all the problems of life and when we become saved, we re- receive a new immune system, if you will, that is fighting against sin because sin is what ultimately destroys us. You know, you've, you've heard the phrases, right? Just, 
just stop it, right? <laughs> like, just stop sinning. Uh, or, or the phrase sometimes that's used, you know, don't do it or you'll be punished, right? Just the threat of punishment that happens. Or the, the shame that comes of just describing something as evil, like, what are you doing that's so evil? And it, it's that shame that comes from that. And then, of course, when it comes to fighting it in, together, sometimes it's that, again, we use the same things, but then we add in the phrase of, you know, pick your battles, right? Like, pick the battles. Like, only pick the battles that'll maybe get you where you want to go. But sometimes battles are worth fighting even, in a sense, to the end, right? And so when we fight against sin, we're, we're, we're dealing with, uh, in a sense, an immune system. And Paul here is, is dealing with... Uh, an, and if, if you will, an immune system in the Corinthian church that's messed up. It, it, and he deals with it and, and twice, which tells you, that 1 Corinthians 6 and then 1 Corinthians 10, he basically repeats the same things. And I'll show you in just a minute what those, those things are. But if he repeats it twice in the same book, <laughs> it, probably, it tells you that there's a problem, Right? <laughs> Like, there's a serious problem if you have to repeat yourself twice in the same letter, you know, to someone. He's, he's trying to help them see something that they're missing, that they're really missing. In 1 Corinthians 6, he's dealing with, in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, he's dealing with sexual immorality, right? They were, they were so tolerant of, of sexual immorality that they were like, yeah, yeah, this guy who is married to his, his stepmother, no big deal. You know, or this is no problem here. At, at the same time as they were so tolerant of that, when they sinned against each other, they were, they were willing to not be tolerant of each other and, and sue each other, you know, 1 Corinthians 6, right? So they were, they, were, they were just messed up in regards to sin. They didn't, know, they didn't know how to deal with it in the community. And then in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, Paul is, is dealing with, okay, yeah, you can, you can eat food offered to idols, but at the same time, you don't want to fall into idolatry, right? And you're so messed up on sin that I know you could fall into idolatry, so I want to talk about that. And so you have... In, in both places, you have this repetition of a pattern, if you will, and I'm going to show you here in just a second, that, that where Paul is saying you need to understand the immune system that God has given to the body of Christ to help the body fight against sin together. And you have to understand that in order for you to do this well. So I, I'm going to show you the pattern, and then we're going to look at the pattern together and see how it works. And in some ways, this could deserve a whole three-series the, the, the three-series sermon, if you will, but I'm going to show you the overview so you get it together. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Starting in verse 9, he says this, after addressing the two questions of in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So the, one of the first things he mentions here in fighting against sin is remember who you are in a sense. Remember who, what you've become in Christ. You were like that, but you now are washed, sanctified, and justified by the Spirit of God. And in 1 Corinthians 10, he starts the same way. 
He says, For I now want you to be unaware, that brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate the same spiritual, drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So he starts off in 1 Corinthians 10 in the same way, reminding them, in a sense, here's the experiences you've had spiritually. You, you've, and just like the, your Old Testament fathers, in a sense, you've had these experiences. They, they have changed who you are, right? Because the, the Jews changed from slaves to being the nation of Israel as God delivered them out of the land of Israel, uh, out of the land of Egypt. And he, he gave them these experiences that transformed them as a people and as individuals into God's people. And so in both places, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 10, he starts off with this idea of who you are in Christ. And, and that, in a sense, the story of how you've become who you are. You know, right? Like, just like when we talk about being an Ameri Americans, what it means to be an American, what do we r remind ourselves of? Our history. We say, look at what our history, like this is who you are now. Both for good and for bad, this is who you are. And so Paul does the same thing with them. And that's an important, we'll look into that more later. Now, then the second thing he does in both places uh, is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then he repeats the same concept in 1 Corinthians 10. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up, right? He's saying, there's something going on here that you're not analyzing correctly. Yes, because you're, in a sense, not under the law, you're under, under Christ. In a sense, everything is lawful. All the desires God has given you, you can fulfill in, in correct ways. But not everything is helpful. You haven't analyzed what's good in the situation properly. So, we'll look at that in further detail. And then, the other thing that happens in 1 Corinthians 6 as well is he reminds them of what they've been given in Christ. And I just think the battery's not quite there. It's dead. Can you go on to the next slide? Matt? It's frozen? It's not my fault at all then. Okay, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6 says, uh, 6 verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So he's talking about glorifying God. He, he ends this way. He says, you should glorify God. That should be the goal that you have, rather than trying to sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he ends the same way. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so, so, so he, he has this pattern. He repeats it twice. And again, this is pretty unusual for Paul. He doesn't repeat himself very often. And of course, there's, there's some differences based on the scenario. But this pattern is here in both places. So this is important. Like, if we want to get, to make the analogy correctly, our immune systems working properly and understand how they work within the body of Christ, especially as we fight about sin uh, against sin together, then we need to understand what, what's going on here. What is Paul trying to kind of bring into the church to help them to fight sin well together so that they can, you know, realize that no, every, you know, there's no, Temptation is common to man, but God gives us grace to overcome it and to work together against it. 
And because that's true, there's three questions I think that are being asked here that, that Paul wants them to understand and think about in order to remind themselves of who, who they are to, to, to put in this immune system properly. The first question is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Like, this is this part of this whole question that he's dealing with in 1 Corinthians 6 and, and 10 is, who do you think you are? The second question that he's asking them to think about is, what do you really want? What do you really want? In a sense, be honest. What do you desire? What's there? What's going on? And the third question he's forcing them to think about is, who do you think is in control or in charge? Who do you think is in control or in charge? Or another way of putting it is, who are you loyal to? Who are you loyal to? So those three questions come together in three ways to help one another in our fighting of sin and its destructiveness. So you're here. let's look, I want to look and kind of analyze these three ways that Paul is putting, is saying, hey, you're not fighting sin properly together. And I want you, he's giving them three ways that they're supposed to do this together. The first one in this immune system is that we remind ourselves who we are and the destiny we have. So there we go, now it's working. Who do you think you are? What do you really want? What do you think, who do you think is in control or in charge? Who are you loyal to? And then, here, here we go. Remind ourselves who we are and the destiny we have. Remind ourselves who we are and the destiny we have. Again, let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, where he says, oh, do you, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now within the context of this verse, there's a couple of things that are mentioned uh, where people say, well, aren't people born this way in a sense? Or aren't people, you know, in a sense, born this way and they just, this is the way they are? Like, how can you change who you are in a sense? But that is the question, right? Is who are you? Who really are you? And what happens in the world, and even ourselves, we get this way, right? We have certain desires. And, and those desires lead to certain behaviors. And, and when you're denied, when you say, oh, well, those, those, those behaviors are bad, or you're denied the opportunity to, to, to say, say this desire is good, you start to demand, you start to demand that these desires be fulfilled and it starts in small ways. You turn to, to people around you, your, your family, your friends, and say, I, I must have this. And if you don't have this, I'm going to punish you. And it, and it grows from there often to basically become an identity. Like, this is who I am. You know, it, it, just think of the greedy one, for instance. If you're greedy for money, sometimes you might hear someone say, well, this is just who I am. I'm, I'm someone who's all about work and making money and, and being successful. This is who I am. Or you could hear someone who would say, you know, I'm just a swinger or I'm just a, a player, right? I'm gonna, they don't want to say I'm sexually immoral or an adulterer. They just want to say, this is who I am. Of course, we would never say I'm a thief. This is just who I am. And this is where the Bible cuts across these things. It's, it's saying that, that, that our identities that we like to make of ourselves because of our desires are simply driven by these desires. You want these things, but are these things good to want? 
And God comes in with a different story. He says, these desires don't have to control who you are. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And the picture here, in a sense, is of taking you somewhat out of the, of the mud that they're in, bringing them out, washing them off, giving them new clothes, and presenting them and saying, this is who they are. They're no longer playing in the mud anymore. They're no longer out in the streets. They're now part of the family. This is who they are. And it's this transition of identity because of what God has done in us. Think of it this way, right? You, can, you have the term Christian. And people like to add adjectives to that name, right? They, like, they might say, well, I'm a conservative Christian, or I'm a gay Christian, or I'm a, you know, put in your label here, right? But let's go back to grammar, for instance, right? We know that adjectives modify nouns. And it... it in this sense, when that happens, the adjective controls the noun rather than the noun controlling the adjective, right? You can't, you can't say, I'm a conservative Christian. You have to say first, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Why? Because once you let the, the adjective control the noun, then you're going to read Scripture a certain way. You're going you're to make certain things happen, and you're going to say, well, I'm, gonna, I'm controlling the agenda now. You can't say, well, I'm a gay Christian. Well, no, wait a second. Who's controlling the agenda? Is the word of God controlling the agenda? What God says about what it means to be a Christian? Or are you twisting scripture to say what you think it means? And we have to remind ourselves who we are and the destiny we have. And Paul is saying here, don't you understand? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot make an identity out of your desires and an idol out of your desires and then say, oh, it's okay. I'm a Christian. No, it doesn't work that way. You have to be a Christian first and foremost and let God determine who you are and what you desire. And that's a part of what Paul is saying here. It's part of this immune system that he wants us to develop. This is why baptism actually is so important for Christians. Why? Because in a sense we're saying, I've changed, I have a new identity now. <laughs> I am now dead to sin and alive to God. I'm putting on, in a sense, new clothes. I'm publicly declaring that I am Christ's, that he has won me, that I am his. We submit our desires to their life-giving expressions as Christians. Because God has given us all, the, the desire for money is good, right? Why? Because I can take that money, and as a Christian, I can be generous. I can have desire to do good with money, but I don't desire money and then let it control me. Which brings me to the second point that in this immune system that he's trying to develop in believers it's that we do a cost-benefit analysis of the power of our desires. We do a cost-benefit analysis of the power of our desires. Notice what he says here in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then he repeats it in, verse, in chapter 10. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. <laughs> like, Paul, why do you need to say it again? Because, again, they're not doing it. They're not thinking correctly here. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will, you know, but I need to think about what builds up. 
And there's not this cost-benefit analysis of the power of our desires, right? Because he's saying our desires, even as Christians, our desires can turn around and dominate us rather than that we live dominated by Christ, in a sense. This is clear in 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, you know, he talks about how they've drunk from the same spiritual rock, that, you know, that they're, they're, they're Christ, they're Christians in that sense. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, he says, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He's saying there's some examples here in the Old Testament, just like Sushma referenced earlier in her testimony, of things that happened, and he's, they're warnings to us that, yes, you're a Christian, you've gone through the experience, this has changed your life, but you can still desire the wrong things, that the, those desires can take control of your life. And he talks about the, some of these desires. He says, don't be idolaters, as some of them were. He says, we must not, we must not indulge in sexual morality, as some of them did. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. We must not grumble, as some of them did. There's these desires, even though they were Christians, they got dominated by the desire and so he's saying, he's saying, there's a phrase they were using, all things are lawful for me. And it's coming out of, in a sense, that, that transition from the Jewish law to, to the New Testament. And they're saying, hey, all things are lawful. But he's saying, but not all things are helpful. <laughs> like, are you considering what the desires are about? What's going on? And a question you can ask yourself, or a couple questions you can ask yourself. Is, is this helping me love someone? Or is this putting me under the domination of a desire, heading for idolatry? Is this helping me love? Or is this putting me under the domination? How can I tell? Well, there's a philosopher named Kafka who came up with this illustration, and he, he used it for a certain thing. I'm going to use it for a different thing. It was called the, the unviewed viewer. Imagine for a second that you're in a room by yourself. And, and no one else is in the room. You can do whatever you please. And you're having fun in that room. You're just doing whatever you please. You're not trying to get out of the room. You just enjoy the privacy of doing your own life and doing your own thing, right? And then you discover in the wall a hole. And in that wall, uh, in that, through that hole, you see another room just like yours. And, and someone is in that room, and they're doing their life. But now, not only can you do your life, but you can watch someone else do their life. And there's kind of a, a certain power and a certain pleasure that comes from being able to see someone else live their lives, but them not know that you're seeing it, right? And so you enjoy that for a while. And then you realize that there is actually another hole in the, in the room. And, and through that hole, someone is viewing you. And now it goes to, okay, wait a second. You know, I was fine with being able to view someone else, but now someone else can view me, can see into the privacy of my life and the privacy of, of who I am and what, I, what I'm doing, and they can know everything that's going on. Well, now you don't like that. You're angry, you're upset, you're, and you're ashamed. You want to hide. You want to be like, hey, this is no good. I don't want this, right? And of course, in a, in a digital age, we totally understand this because we're all about privacy, right? Like, I don't want people to know my, my, my internet history. I don't want people to know what I buy. I don't know what I want people to know what I, what I like, you know, through my, through, through my subscriptions or whatever. I want my privacy, correct? 
But there's always in this unviewed viewer, right? And, and what we do in some ways is insist on privacy laws. But then the other thing we do is we, in a sense, we, we think we can retreat to a corner of the room and we can put up a screen, right? And, and, and we have rear projection from the screen and we can project on that screen whatever people from the outside are looking at, right? It's called social media, right? And I, now I'm behind the screen, and you can't see in the, in the behind behind the screen what's really going on in private, but I can project to you from the outside what's really go, what, what I want you to see. Until you realize that someone can still see behind there, right? And part of the, Kafka's point here is there's always an unviewed viewer if you believe in God, right? God can always see behind the screen. You can always see into the privacy of, of your thoughts and your desires and what you want and what you don't want anyone else to know about. And for all of us, at some point, that causes shame. We don't like that. In, in some ways, we don't like that about the idea of God. <laughs> we don't want that to be true. Like, God, I, I want some part of me that's not available to you. <laughs> and, and how do we deal with it? What God, what God does is he says, well, one, he gives us his word. He says, look, I'm stepping out from behind the wall. I don't want this one-way relationship where you know I know what's going on in your heart, but you don't know how I feel about it. And he's like, he gives us his word because he, just, he says, I want to step into the room. I want to have a conversation. I want to be able to, to, for you to know how I feel and what's going on, and, and mostly for you to realize that I love you, that this is not about me hiding behind a wall thinking, oh, I get to see what's in their lives and I get to judge them. No, he wants to come into the room and, and, and meet with us and, and fellowship with us and enjoy us. What we have to realize is that you're either letting someone into the room, you're either letting someone in and, 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 and having a conversation, or you're being manipulated by that outside desire. And the point that he's making here and the point that I'm making is desires are that if you're not aware of your own desires, if you're not aware of what's driving your behavior, then you're being manipulated by that desire. It's going to manipulate you and change you and mold you and put, you know, sounds into the room or things into the room in order for it to get the performance that it wants. And God is saying that if you, if you want to fight sin, you have to be aware of your desires. You have to be aware of the power of those desires and how they're trying to control you. So, can I just use a couple of illustrations here, or at least one, right? I think a, a big one in today's society, uh, for most families, would be sports, right? Sports are a good thing. Nothing wrong with sports. But if you don't realize the desires that they're percolating in you, the desire to, for glory for yourself, the desire to be powerful and be seen as powerful, and it's, in a sense, it's all about me, then what happens? Then, then all of a sudden, sports become, in a sense, your idol. They start to control you, manipulate you, and say, hey, you know, hey, who cares about your family? You know, care about your team. Who cares about, who, who cares about how you treat other people on the field? Care about winning. That's all that matters. 
And all of a sudden it starts to manipulate you and control you. And, and what Paul is saying here is the desires are good. Desire to, to have fun and to, even to win, to, to, to compete. Those are all good desires. But if you don't invite them into the room and have a conversation, let, let's talk about how you don't dominate me in a sense. Then you're going to be dominated. And whether that's sports or any other legitimate desire that you have, if you're not willing to let it into the room and have a conversation about how it's not going to dominate you, and you're going to let, in a sense, who's really going to be in charge here, you're going to be in trouble. Parents, you need to have this conversation with your children. You know, it's a conversation we've had with our kids periodically over the years, right? Like, hey, yes, we want you in sports, we want you to have fun. It's not going to trump church. It's not going to trump God, right? We're going to have, it's not going to trump family time. Like there's certain things we're going to do as a family that trump sports. There's certain things about, about who we are as a family and, and our worship of God and our love for God that are not going to trump that. Why? Because we want to have an honest conversation. We just don't want that to dominate. The desire for glory and power and fame to dominate our children and dominate us. And so, and so you have to do a cost-benefit analysis. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And are you having that conversation on a regular basis? Here's why. In the text, and I don't have time to go into this, the point is, is that you're either seeing the power of the desire or you're seeing God's power. If you don't have the conversation about sports, all you do is see the power of sports. You see, wow, look, I can win, I can be famous, I can be, I can be, uh, I can have all these things. But if, you, but if you limit it, then all of a sudden you realize, you know what, God is the one who's giving me victory here. God is the one who's helping me over here. God is the one who's helping me love in a difficult situation. And you start to see God's power. You're, you're either seeing the power of the desire or you're seeing God's power. And if you don't do the cost-benefit analysis, you never see God's power in your life. And you wonder, and you're like, where's God in this? What's God doing in sports? What's God doing over here? What's God over there? It's because you never did the cost-benefit analysis. And you missed out on seeing the power of God in your family, in your life. And you need to do that. If you're going to fight sin well, if you're going to have this immune system working properly. Let's go on to the third which is that he appeals to the honor of being redeemed. He appeals to the honor of being redeemed. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. I've got to find the spot. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He's, he's just reminding them, he's saying, hey, part of this immune system is really saying, what, what did God do for me? Not just that he, that he did something that I'm different now, but look at the amazing thing that he did. This is, ex, uh, as Sushma referenced, this is, this is referenced in Exodus, right? God brought them out of the land of Egypt, right? He, he freed them as slaves. They were free now. And as Americans especially, we like to be free, right? We, we, we love freedom. We want, hey, freedom, this is awesome. I could do whatever I please. But you, you, you realize in Exodus, he's not saying, okay, I'm going to free you from the land of Egypt, and I'm going to send you out, and you, now you can do, go do whatever you want. I don't care. Just go do. No, he's saying, 
he frees them in order to do what? In order for them to be his people. Before they were free to, to obey Pharaoh. That's the only thing they were free to do. Now they're free to love and honor and obey God, their new king, right? And the point of freedom is, we're, as, as believers is, and as, frankly as human beings is, we're always free from something in order to be free to, to do something else. You're never just free. You're always free from something to be free to serve and love something else. And what God has done for us is he has bought us out of sin and death. He has freed us from those things in order that we can be free to to live in his love, to, to experience his grace, to walk in his peace. This is the amazing thing that God has done for us. He has, he has transformed us. In, in 1 Corinthians 10, right, he talks about this in a different way. He says, he says, flee from idolatry. You know, he says, you know, you can eat. He says, I speak to, to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And he talks about that in the sense of communion. And he says, what then, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord, the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy or be stronger than he? And the emphasis here is not so much on the power of demons. (laughs) It's the last question. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Like, do you realize what God has done for you? How he's loved you and, and given his son for you? And then you're going to turn around and say, well, I don't care about that? You're going to provoke the Lord to jealousy. <laughs> he's going to be jealous over you. And he's going to take that desire that you're making an idol, and he's going to be like, hey, I'm going to take that out of their lives so they can realize that I'm more important than that. We're not stronger than he is. Tim Keller tells a story from his ministry. He says, some time ago, a woman helped me understand this. She was raised in a non-Western family from a very traditional culture. There was only one son in the family, and it was understood in her culture that he would receive most of the family's provision and honor. In essence, he said, they said, he's the son, you're just a girl. And that's the way it was. One day, she was studying a passage on adoption in Paul's writings, and primarily, she suddenly realized that the, the apostle was making a revolutionary claim. Paul lived in a traditional culture just like she did. She was, he was living in a place where daughters were second-class citizens. When Paul said, out of his own traditional culture, that we are all sons in Christ, he was saying that there is no second-class citizens in God's family. When you give your life to Christ and become a Christian, you receive all the benefits a son enjoys in a traditional culture. We don't often see the sweetness of this welcome. I don't recognize all the beauty of God's subversion and revolutionary promise to me that raises me to the highest honor of adopting us as sons. Our adoption means that we are all loved like Christ was loved. We are all honored like he is honored. Every one of us, no matter what. Your circumstances cannot hinder or threaten that promise. In your bad circumstances, In fact, your bad circumstances will only help you understand and even claim the beauty of that promise. The more you live out who you are in Christ, the more you become like him in actuality. Paul is not promising you better life circumstances. He is promising you a far better life. 
He's promising you a life of greatness. He's promising you a life of joy. Why? Because we are now in Christ. This is what it means to be redeemed. This is who you are in Christ, but it's the honor of it. You are a a son, a daughter of the king. You have gone from rags to riches, spiritually speaking. And this is who you are, and not just who you are, but the honor of being a part of this. It's like saying, oh yeah, you you know what, the government messed you up and did all this to you, now you're a part of the government. (laughs) You can help solve the problem. You can do something about it. You can be participating in the life of Christ. And Paul is saying here to the believers, he's saying, hey, if you don't get this, then again, desire dominates us. It moves us away from, uh, it, it moves us away from loving God to being about ourselves and, and dominating us and saying, well, this is the only way I can be happy is if X or Y happens to me. And God says, no, I have a multitude of ways to, to make you happy, to satisfy you, but it's about me satisfying you and not about that. So the question for you is, the question for us, is are we reminding ourselves who we are? Are we reminding ourselves who we are and the destiny we have? Are we not doing that on a regular basis where, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting about individual behaviors and we're, well, don't do that. I don't like what you're doing over there. Or are we saying, you know what? This is who we are in Christ. Isn't it great to be washed and sanctified and justified? <laughs> are, are we inviting the desires into the room, so to speak, and having a conversation with them? Are we saying, hey, I, I know I want this, but how do, how do I honor God in the midst of this? How do I, how do I say, what does God want me to do this desire? Are we doing that? Are we having that cost-benefit analysis on a regular basis? And then are we reminding ourselves and, and enjoying together the honor of being redeemed? I don't care where you're from. You can be from Timbuktu, Mali. You can be from South Africa. You can be from China. You can be from the United States. If God has saved you, you are his. That is your primary identity, and it's your primary honor. His son died for you. That's how valuable you are. I don't care what your brain tells you about how worthless you are or how incapable you are or how worthless your life is. No, you are a son or a daughter of the king of kings. You are his. He wants to do something special with you. He doesn't waste things that are his. And this is what we need to remind ourselves. This is what we need to encourage ourselves with. Why? Because sin is deadly. It is destructive. It kills. And we see a world around us that's dying and broken and hurting. And we have life. And not just life for this life of 60, 70, 80, 100 years. We have eternal life. Because we were bought by the Son of God. His blood for us. He has redeemed us. We have a new destiny. Therefore, let us encourage one another. Let us remind ourselves together. Let us enjoy 
the good grace of God. Will you do that? Heavenly Father, you have been so gracious to us. We've, we've ignored you. We've taken our desires and made them ultimates rather than you. We've said, I like this. I don't like you, God. And yet you sent your son to die for us. He rose again that we might have life. And so many times, Lord, I'm, I'm like the unviewed viewer. I'm, I'm just, I want to live my life and I want to, I don't care about anyone else and I don't, I just don't want anyone else to know what's going on. And yet you love me enough to step into the room. Say, hey, there's something better. There's more of the world than just a room. Come out and see the beauty that I have made. Lord, help us to step out of the room. Lord, help us to walk with you. Help us to enjoy what you're doing in our lives. And help us to love one another as a result. In your son's name we pray.